Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pages Unknown, the podcast dedicated to all things bookish and nerdy. My name is Zachariah, and I will be joined, as always, by my fabulous co-host, Michaela. Say hi, Michaela. Hi, Michaela. <laughs> if this is your first time tuning in, thanks for joining us. We're glad that you're here. For new episodes and to find all the episodes we've released so far, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. So we are officially in the weird sort of liminal space in between Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's, where you're just spending way more money than you actually have. And there's absolutely no time for your hobbies. (laughs) It's just, if you're not shopping, you're cooking. If you're not cooking, you're planning. If you're not shopping, cooking, and planning, you're questioning why you do this to yourself every year even though the holidays always come at the same time. <laughs> if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Come on, Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> so knowing that this is an insanely busy time of year, Zach and I were trying to be very, very selective mm-hmm. about what we're reading for the podcast, how we're doing the podcast when we record, all that good stuff. We were actually trying to plan this out which we don't normally do if you couldn't tell. We tried to sort of stick to certain page limits so we weren't reading, you know, mega tomes uh, to record with. We were trying to pick, quote unquote, easy books, you know, cutesy romances, light and fluffy novellas, things that would be a light in the darkness that is the holiday season. (laughs) And then I found Starling House. (laughs) What a preamble to bring us here. <laughs> By, yeah, it's a long walk. I hope you stretched. By Alex Harrow. Mm-hmm. Now, it only clocks in at 320 pages. Yeah. So certainly not a heavy read. But it is dealing <laughs> with some rather heavy themes mm-hmm. and definitely heavier themes than you might want for the holidays. <laughs> <laughs> Things like... Grief, mm-hmm. loss, self-hatred, self-isolation, a lack of understanding and a lack of empathy, greed, abuse. Yeah. <laughs> All of these things are prevalent. And to Zach's everlasting credit, he said, oh, fuck it. All right, you stupid bitch. We will read <laughs> your weird, sad book <laughs> the podcast. Hold on. I'm being painted in a bad light here. I'm going to interject right here. Number one, I love weird. I love weird <laughs> things. I like sad things. Sad, weird things. I have questions. Alexi Harrow, number one, how dare you? And- <laughs> <laughs> Michaela, I mean, this is a great choice, though. This was your choice. Yeah. This is a fantastic yes. choice. Well, I'm not being dramatic when I say that this is my favorite read of the year. Oh, wow. Uh, I don't. I'm not one of those readers. I don't give out five stars. I'm a three star type gal. You know, everybody's usually getting a minimum of three stars, but I don't give out five stars because I don't think that a book could be perfect. I gave this book five stars. Wow. I had no notes. (laughs) I had nothing to say. (laughs) I have notes. I have notes. Except all the things I have to say. Exactly. Except all the things that we actually have to say. Giving something five stars is actively hard. I agree with you. I think the last book that I did that with was, was it Babel? Was that my last five star? Oh, very Oh, maybe Yellow Face. I don't know. I loved Yellow Face, but that's another podcast. Uh, (laughs) Intent. That's another episode. Plug, plug, plug. (laughs) 
this was right up my street. Ava Reed has reviewed it, who we love. We've done other podcasts about Ava Reed's books. Also, go and check those out once you're done listening to this. Plug, plug, plug. Zach, what did you think? What were your initial thoughts when I was like, hey, how do you feel about reading this book that's not at all Christmassy and has absolutely the opposite themes of the holiday season? Yeah. So uh, initially, I had proposed to Michaela that we do uh, like spooky Christmas and cozy Christmas. And Michaela's like... (laughs) Here you go. And I'm like, oh, the Starling, the Starling house. Like, this doesn't look very Christmassy, but okay. And she's like, it's not. I got you. <laughs> so that's the background. Uh, and then I I read the book and I laughed and I cried and I was taken aback multiple, multiple times throughout this book. It surprised me in ways that I, I don't normally get surprised on, on a lot of books. I feel like I can usually predict where we're kind of headed, where we're kind of going, maybe not all the weird meandering in between, but I can kind of guess it. At no point did I know where some of this was going to go. And at points I thought Alex might have written herself into a corner with how some things ended or how things were abrupt, but how things were tied up in every single instance. I mean, perfect. I mean, I I hate saying that word. I hate saying the word perfect, but I'm like, damn, this is like a masterclass in doing a lot of things at once. And really, really holding like 80 balls in the air at one time and catching them all. I don't have anything bad to say about it, except for man, that pacing at the end, it is breakneck. Mm -hmm. You are, Mm -hmm. you're on a marathon that is also a sprint. I mean, I think we both read it in a day. Oh yeah. I read it today. (laughs) (laughs) Fresh in the mind. Uh, Yeah. We both read it in a day and that's not because it was so boring that, you know, we had to finish it right away. It's because I Mm. literally could not put this book down. I was consistently questioning what Mm. the fuck was going to happen. Trying, I I did go back. I had to reread a couple things, trying to like understand the space that they were in. But before we get Mm -hmm. too deep in the weeds of what we thought about the book, let's give some quick background for anybody who hasn't yet read it. So (laughs) I'm just going to read to you the Goodreads synopsis of this book, just because it's easier to do. Eden, Kentucky is just another dying bad luck town known only for the legend of E. Starling, the reclusive 19th century author and illustrator who wrote The Underland and disappeared. Before she vanished, Starling House appeared, but everyone agrees it's best to leave the uncanny house and its last lonely heir, Arthur Starling, go to rot. Opal knows better than to mess with haunted houses or brooding men, but an unexpected job offer might be the chance to get her brother out of Eden. Too quickly, though, Starling House starts to feel dangerously like something she's never had. A home. As sinister forces converge on Starling House, Opal and Arthur are going to have to make a dire choice to dig up the buried secrets of the past and confront their own fears, or let Eden be taken over by literal nightmares. If Opal wants a home, she'll have to fight for it. Okay. You can see what drew me in. (laughs) Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) But having read the book now and looking back at this, I'm like, oh, this is not, things are not as they appear. And it- There's mm. so much more. There's so much more. I know. There are so many layers. Whoever did the blurb for this did a great job, actually, of like not only pulling you in, but actually giving you- 
what the hell's going on? Anyway. <laughs> now, so reading this book, every chapter felt like you were peeling back this layer of grime and grit. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, when we meet Opal, she is rough around the edges, to say the least. She's 27 years old, mm-hmm. which I was like, finally, thank you for giving us Slay. an age-appropriate main character. I don't have to read about a 16-year-old. Correct. She is taking care of her younger 17-year-old brother, who is, in her eyes, extremely talented. Um, he's amazing with like graphic design. He does a lot of stuff with like, making movies, like filmography mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And he's like wicked smart. And in Opal's eyes, she's like, you're too good for this ain't shit ass town. We need to get you out. And that's her goal. She's got Mm -hmm. one thing in mind, and that's all she does. She works to make money to send her brother to a boarding school that is worthy of his talent. It should come as no surprise that this makes her a sort of loner in the town. She doesn't really have time for friends nor patience for the people in the town. She doesn't want to get to know these people, people who have turned the other cheek when her and her brother lost their mom who have ignored the fact that these impoverished children are making their own way by stealing, lying, doing whatever they can to make ends meet. She begrudges the place where she lives, but she knows that she needs them. She needs them so she can get her brother out. And so when she's offered a very well-paying job Mm -hmm. by the reclusive Arthur Starling to clean a decrepit house. Now, when... (laughs) We're first seeing Starling House. It's falling apart. It's ramshackle. Mm -hmm. There's rats everywhere. There's bugs, decay. I mean, it's disgusting. And every chapter that you read feels kind of like you're cleaning the house with Opal. Oh, yeah. You're unearthing all this stuff as you go Mm -hmm. through the book. It really felt like a journey that you were taking with her. And as... That synopsis says Opal uncovers a lot more than dirt and grime. She is suddenly entrenched in a world where she is now responsible for the fate of a town that she hates and people that hate her. I don't even know if they hate her. They're almost, it's almost worse. They're almost indifferent to her troubles and problems. That's the real thing about it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think her classmates definitely hate her. That one girl who she works with who's always like, I'll pray for you. (laughs) Like very small town, Kentucky. I'll pray on it. I'll pray on it. I love it. Everything about this book was so atmospheric. Mm-hmm. There's a mist that rolls over the town and people just sort of live in it. And it's known that when the mist comes out, bad things happen. People get hurt. So stay inside is the town's reaction. <laughs> people die. Well, they shouldn't have been out. And that oppressive mist that Alex Ihara was writing about, I felt it. I really felt mm-hmm this oppressive nature of this town throughout the story. And I think that that's a really big feature of Gothic horror novels, that the setting is in and of itself its own character. And something else that's kind of interesting, the town where this is set is known to Mm -hmm. be a coal mining town. That's Mm -hmm. their claim to fame. They had coal in all these mines. A lot of people made their wealth off it. The mines ran dry and the town fell into disrepair because of it. That sort of coal dust feeling. Mm-hmm. It feels like it's on everything. This whole town is coded in like a film of its past and of the 
dirt that they refuse to acknowledge. Refuse. It's flat out refusal. God, this book was so good. (laughs) I know. You're talking about Opal cleaning the house and finding all this dirt. I'm like, well, she was uncovering both like literal and metaphorical dirt the entire time, as you are saying. She's really Mm -hmm. uncovering what the story is about this house, why it's here. And then all of the things that there's a great analogy to this where it's like built off the backs of the Native Americans, off the back of the slaves, off the back. And that's what is not being talked about here uh, by the people in the town. We're being told it, yep. right? This mining town, who who was mining? Who was doing yep. the mining? Who was making the money for people? And also there's a little detail in here that you might, I don't know if you caught it or not, but this in this story, this is one of the last towns where it was told that slavery had ended. And mm-hmm. so that's like a thing that the author does not shy away from, especially this being in Kentucky, because they were so far north, you know, during the, the Civil War. So people kind of looked at it a little bit differently, even yeah. though they didn't technically secede, right? It's like this all this weird nonsense that was going on with Kentucky. They almost got grandfathered in. It's like, well, we're close enough. But mm-hmm. the author is from Kentucky. Yeah. And so she talks about Kentucky with that sort of that that universal feeling that a lot of millennials and younger have towards their hometowns, Mm. which is this, like, you traumatized me. You hurt me. I wanted you to want me and you didn't, but I still love you. And I want you so badly to be better. Like it would mean the world to me if you'd be better, but I know you won't. You, this is an audio only podcast at the moment. So you can't see slowly me just like sinking (laughs) into my chair being like, yeah, I really wanted where I'm from to to love me or to even care that I existed. Mm-hmm. And that's how she felt. You're talking about this being an atmosphere. It's the hatred that you feel in some of these places is palpable. It's almost a currency yeah. that people run with, right? Like however much they can put you below them, uh, the better. I don't know what the right, despair is not strong enough. Like this like weird, deeply felt anguish by the people that are there of a, of a world that's forgotten them and of a town that's given up kind of on itself in a lot of ways. I think it's done really well here. It reminded me of a Mac Miller lyric of all things, <laughs> uh, where he says, I've been in the shit so long that it don't smell. <laughs> Opal's like a fresh set of eyes. Yes. But because she has this one singular goal, she doesn't have time to unpack all this other crap she's seeing. The stuff that she sees that other people choose to ignore, like Starling House. She is like the first person to walk through the gate of Starling House, Mm -hmm. besides Arthur himself, in a decade. Yeah. I do want to talk a little bit Mm -hmm. about Arthur Starling. Something that is really very special to me and is really why I love, I'm, I'm growing to love gothic horror so much, is that the characters are all low key ugly. Yeah, low-key, gross They are not cute. You are not getting like a description of people where they're, oh, and I was was thin and and demure and I'm so little because I'm that girl, you know? And I'm the chosen one, yeah. Yeah, there's not here. Arthur Starling's a fucking weirdo. He's not a brooding bad boy who's six foot eight with a, you know, 12-pack abs. Arthur's weird. He's got hair that hangs over his eyes. He's always hunched over. He's pale as anything, probably as pale as I am. He's got eyes that are sunken into his face because he's so exhausted. Like the oppression of the town weighs heaviest on him. Yep. And it is physically represented. His clothing, while fancy looking, is dusty as hell. 
He oh. carries around a sword, which mm-hmm. no one understands in the town. People see him standing alone with the sword in 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 the yard and they're like mm-hmm. he's been you know he's been touched by an angel like they're like what's going on out there but he sees exactly opal shows up and he offers her a job and he's flustered and embarrassed and he doesn't know how to talk to her and it's very sweet it's very cute she says that she doesn't have a coat you know when it's very cold and he's like where's your coat and she says my brother's using it and mm-hmm. so what does he do gets her a coat finds out that she's walking over three miles to get to his house to clean it. So he gives her a car that belonged to his late father. He sees her and he's the only person, including Opal, the only person that prioritizes her. The reasons that he does it, that he prioritizes her, you will find out when you read it. Mm-hmm. And he is one of the most interesting male characters I've read in a while. He is beholden to this mm-hmm. house. He's beholden to a legacy that he didn't want, that he inherited. And he is crushed under the weight of this self-imposed isolation because of a guilt he feels, a responsibility that he has taken on. And it literally is killing him. And he's letting it because he thinks he deserves it. Every word in that sentence I want to expound on, but it is every single one of them is a spoiler. Everything that you just said in that last sentence, I want. <laughs> I'm sitting here like, oh, I, th- and I had to hold back. I muted myself so that I couldn't say anything just now. Something else that is hugely prevalent in gothic horror is female rage that comes in in the most beautifully ugly ways. Mm-hmm. Gothic horror and this book specifically, as well as like Ava Reed's books, they do not shy away from the ugly parts of womanhood and the inherited trauma that women carry. So much of this book felt like a sort of love letter to that mind-bending rage women feel but cannot express. And it's something that you cope with. It's something that you live with. You inherit it from your mom who inherited it from her mom who inherited it from her mom and back and back and back. And it's like the opportunity to finally heal a little bit of that Mm -hmm. through something grotesque or ugly, just knowing that there's a world that exists in this genre where the ugliest parts are made to be seen as beautiful or accepted Mm -hmm. and not excused, but understood. Yeah. And I, that's the, at the, at its core, that's what this book made me so emotional about because Opal is a character, this older sister mentality of it's too late for me, but I'll be damned if it's too late for him. Like he's getting out. And when she sends this this person away, her whole reason for existence, her brother is literally the reason that she exists. Mm-hmm. What's left for her? It's a real examination of self-worth and what you're willing to give up to help somebody yeah. else. But in every in every relationship in her life, this is how it kind of is. What does she have to give up in order to make sure that other people are okay? You're talking about like, female rage. And I know that people on social media and all the internet see this as the screaming that was in Hereditary and all of these different things. They see this. The way that the author here, Alex Harrow, talks about this in an interview that was on WBUR, Alex says, women's anger is something that had to be shoved into horror or really only had a place in horror and gothic because it was naturally antithetical to the way things were supposed to be. 
And then this, her having to drop out of school to take care of her brother. And that's why she's so intent, as you're saying, on like making sure that this, this cycle stops and all of her rage is being fueled into this. I don't care how much I bleed, how much I sweat. As you said, you're getting out of here, whether it kills me and you, you are getting out of here. It's, oh my God, I get, I have goosebumps because this book just does this so well. Oh, the way that you grow to see through Opal's barbs and the thorns mm-hmm. that she kind of has grown around are really, really strongly reminded me of Marlinchen in Ava Reed's book, yeah, uh, Juniper and Thorn. Mm-hmm. They're sort of mirror images of one another where Marlinchen mm. is soft because she grew up in a in a very sheltered environment and learns how to grow that armor around her. Opal is hard and learns how to be soft. And the fact that both of these women, Marlinchen and Opal, and even Eleanor Starling, another character who I'd like to discuss, all exist in this one genre where they get to grow and emote and feel and deal with the trauma and be traumatized, but come out of it the other side. Mm-hmm. I think it's so important yeah. that these female characters are in the forefront of people's minds and that writers like Alex Harrow and Ava Reed inspire younger female identifying folks to go into the ugly and not be afraid yeah. of their own ugly mm-hmm. and find a little bit of a story in the ugliness. It's so beautiful to me. This is why I think like uh, the she's the days and the gays <laughs> we have bound together. We are <laughs> inexorably <laughs> tied. As you're talking about this, I'm I'm so drawn to these types of characters. Uh, maybe not as much to Marlinchen. Poor Marlinchen. She was written to be this way, though. She was pathetic because she was, yes. you were saying she was soft. I was saying it was naivete because she was just, you know, inexperienced. I mean, she grew up in a one house. Exactly. <laughs> she and never left. <laughs> Exactly. And Opal was the exact opposite. Opal was like street smart, had to keep going, would brazenly steal things to get by. There's this really, there's this great moment where Opal's hardness is kind of like, which is funny to say Opal and hardness because all of the the jewel mm-hmm. references throughout the book, it's very, it's very fun as Jasper is the brother's name. Uh, her hardness gets kind of challenged because the person that she stays with at the, at the hotel where they stay, number 12, she kind of is like, We've never asked for help. And inside of that, it's like something breaks when a person who's had to become so strong hears that because they're like, no, because every the, the one time I did, it was a failure. I had to learn how to do it myself. And it's almost like, as you're saying, they they get to emote, but they don't get to, they get to survive. They don't get to thrive. And that really, really pisses me off that we don't have these spaces to do that. And now we're just talking about like women's rights in general in this freaking country, like well, for God's sake. That's why when these books come out, mm-hmm. there's always, I mean, there's always a surge of gothic horror specifically written by female identifying authors Mm -hmm. when there is also a political landscape that is vehemently opposed to women because this is the outlet. I do also think something to piggyback, to piggyback off what Zach said, Opal's told a couple times, you never asked for help. You never asked. Mm -hmm. And part of it's true. Part of it's, well, you were strong, you did it yourself and you grew and you learned from that, that to be self-sufficient. But the other part of it is, well, she was a child. She was a child. And a child shouldn't have to ask you to help if you're an adult. You should just help. You see a kid stealing soup cans for her and her little brother while they're living in a one-bedroom motel room. Mm -hmm. Maybe extend a little bit of aid without having 
to be asked. And so much of that connects mm-hmm. back to, again, womanhood, where the onus, the, the, the work imbalance is put on the woman. Well, you didn't tell me what to do. That's why I didn't empty the dishwasher. That's why I didn't mow the lawn. Well, you didn't tell me to. Where's my honey-do list? Somebody else. Mm-hmm. You kind of alluded to this in the beginning, this idea of people turning a blind eye to history, to the ugly parts of their own history and to the mm-hmm. ugly parts of their town's history and our country's history. There's one story in this book that sort of acts like a thread connecting Opal to mm-hmm. Starling House, connecting Starling House to Eden, all of it. Mm-hmm. And we hear multiple different iterations of this one story. And that's the story of Eleanor Starling. Some of the stories say that she ran away into the woods. She went crazy one night and uh, murdered her husband and and ran off. Some of them say that she had this weird, she's a witch, and she had this weird house built for her ritual sacrifices because she's doing the devil's work. Slay. (laughs) Pop off, queen. (laughs) With so many different iterations, it's hard to find the truth. Opal searches. She goes through historical records. She works with the town librarian. Was the we love her? Who is there to try to make things better? Thank God, I couldn't deal with a bad librarian. <laughs> she never quite finds what she's looking for mm-hmm. until we hit that breakneck speed point, and things become horrifically clear, and the truth comes out. That last forty percent of this book, and <sighs> those moments. I quite literally could not look away. Oh, yeah. And my heart was breaking for some of the characters. I know. But I was also like a sort of grim understanding that there's mm-hmm. nowhere nowhere else it could have gone. Yeah. And of course, this is the truth. How was it not obvious to me in the beginning? So th- her story wasn't the only one that was kind of getting like cleaned up or kind of like made to appear a certain way, right? I'm going to reference this interview that the author did for a second time here. I'm going to read directly from it because I think that they say it better than, than I could. The history that comes bubbling up to the surface in Starling House is Kentucky's involvement in slavery, and it's something Harrow didn't shy away from. Quote, I think Kentucky, because it was in the Upper South, because it was occupied by Northern forces very quickly in the Civil War and didn't technically secede, I think it gets left out of narratives of Southern enslavement. I can't participate in that. She goes on to say, writing Starling House meant unraveling the evasive ways in which Americans tell stories about the South, even within their own families. Quote, in my family stories, it's magically scrubbed clean of where wealth came from or who worked the land, Harrow said. I had to learn many things about my own family and about my own home and undergrad and grad school. The trauma of history is a bitter stain on the coal-dusted town of Eden, Kentucky. It's such an undercurrent the whole time because without that slavery happening, without that slavery occurring, nothing else would have happened in this book. It would not have happened in this capacity the way that it did. The digging, the literal unearthing of this resource is also what unearthed all of the problems that now this town is facing supernaturally from Starling House. We see a lot in this book 
obviously with Opal talking a lot about classism. And then her brother, which by the way, I don't think we've mentioned this yet, but Jasper is from a different father and Jasper is half uh, Latine. And so the town already looks at him with so much more suspicion about stealing things, even though Opal's the one who's got sticky fingers and everybody in town knows it. Mm -hmm. It's just woven into everything that's going on. And you almost feel like people in the story are kind of, judging her for trying to get her brother out of there, just being like, oh, you think that he's better than us? You almost start to feel this, like, you think you're too good for this place? At the same time, everybody's telling her to leave. And it's this constant, it's this constant pull and push. I really love that she didn't shy away from it. And also Correct. being somebody from Kentucky who's like actively kind of tackling it head on, um, I think is a yep. little rare. And by the way, this was like the last place in Kentucky to like hear that slavery was over. And that's what's so crazy about this whole thing because they kept them going. There's this big, yeah. obviously one of the big bad evil people in this story is like this power company. That's also the people who own all the coal and all this stuff. So like, it's also a lot of like environmental things kind of woven uh, throughout this book, it tackles a lot in like 340 pages. There's a lot happening here. But this town turns a blind eye to everything. Its own past, how it's actively treating people, uh, just everything at one time. Yeah. I mean, this is one of those thinkers. This is one of those books that stays with you. I'm definitely going to reread it. Uh, mm -hmm. I know you're not a big rereader. I'm not. No, I'm not a big rereader. And I'm not either. But this is one of those stories that I think I will be revisiting time and time again, because there is so much. This is this is a romance. There is romance in it. Yeah, there definitely is. But it's a rare one where the two people, they support each other. They sacrifice for each other. They see each other. On a whole other level. Like They have the goofy tete-a-tete. <laughs> she feels like she's won something when she gets a little bit of a quirk of a smile out of him. Mm -hmm. They're not shy around one another's not-so-pretty parts. They don't make excuses for their own not-so-pretty parts. Yeah. It's a romance in the truest sense of partnership. It's the quiet type of romance that lasts. If you're on the fence because you don't like scary books... There is some body horror in this. There is some gore, some violence. There's insinuations of essay. So you should be mindful of all of that and definitely check the trigger warnings before you dive in. But I think it's well worth it if those are topics that you are willing to read about or are capable, like have the, the emotional bandwidth to read about them. This is a really important story. And... I really hope a lot of people give it a chance because I would love to see this book on everybody's TBRs and on all of the uh, book charts. Thank you guys so much for tuning into another episode of Pages Unknown. Once again, if you liked what you heard and you feel like listening to more of our nonsense, you can find us wherever you find your podcast, Spotify, Apple, literally we're everywhere. We also have a uh, a little chaos den over on TikTok, again, under Pages Unknown. Catch y'all next time. Goodbye. Bye.